Movies by Minutes, project number five. It's Silverado this time. That's no jive. By Lawrence Kasdan, who wrote the show. Let's settle up now, kids, because here we go. Howdy, and welcome to another episode of the Silverado Minute. Each week, Movies by Minutes hosts examine the 1985 Lawrence Kasdan-directed western, Silverado. One minute of screen time per episode. I've been your host all this week. You can call me The Professor. It's my final episode, so a few thoughts before I get into it. I grew up with this movie. I like this movie. But even when I was younger, it was like my brain didn't want to process some of the final act. There's a bit too much going on a few too many characters vying for space. Cobb cannot be a lone villain, but there's a big difference between having minions with personality and those minions getting their own subplots that, in the case of Jeff Goldblum's Slick, for example, are disconnected from the main story. Why does Mal need a murdered father and an endangered sister for the final fight to come? Why is the wagon train in this film at all? What does Hannah bring to the plot? For that matter, While Stella is a fantastic character played wonderfully by Linda Hunt, what does she bring to the final act? Why are Peyton and Jake two different characters at all? Or Peyton and Abbott, for that matter. Coming back to this movie again now, I still enjoy it, but I feel like the script could have used another pass, or the final film a different edit. Or maybe I'm just getting old. Peyton just spotted his horse across the way. The script says what he sees. His horse, a good-looking bay, and dawdling his way out of a saloon, a disreputable-looking cowboy. As minute ten begins, we are close on Payton's midsection as he goes for a gun that isn't there. And this is okay, of course, in a Western that our leads use guns before they use words. In The American Scholar, summer 1987, John P. Fisk suggests that both real and mythical cowboys have a lack of interest in politics. And he argues, quote, No doubt the cowboy's lack of interest in politics is connected with his famous taciturnity. In Emerson's essay on farming, in which you can find an early celebration of many of the virtues of the Western hero, he remarks, Cities force growth and make men talkative and entertaining, but they make him artificial. Loquacity and politics go together, which is why, in the Western, politics is usually either missing or identified as one of the ways that glib city people waste their time and mess up the country. Politicians are fast talkers, which means that politics is fundamentally a shell game, a cowboy bias widely shared by city people. You cannot imagine Bill Hart, Buck Jones, or Hopalong Cassidy joining the Communist Party, but neither can you imagine them campaigning for anybody. The act would violate their implied laissez-faire conservatism with its Rambo-like assumption that what the country needs is not politics but virtue, a dangerous assumption for a democracy in which it is so likely that when the political talking stops, the rustlers begin to take over. Of course, the Western hero, cowboy or not, turns out, in the end, to be a politician in his own fashion. He simply uses his six-shooter to settle problems about the just use and distribution of power, which, if they are not settled quickly, will soon overwhelm his ability to cope with them and thus cast him adrift into the culturally fast world that he abhors. And we come to the bit I already quoted last minute. The fabled taciturnity of the Western hero and allied pastoral types in our culture appeals to a widespread conviction that actions speak louder than words, are more honest than words, 
and may very well be grounded on positions of philosophic integrity that a Socrates would quickly obfuscate with his verbosity. Thus, it is easy for poets and storytellers, including movie makers, to imagine that a cowboy, blessed with great stretches of time when he is alone with nature, cannot avoid dwelling on the eternal verities. End quote. And in case you listening are a cowboy and don't go in for all those big city words, it boils down to this. The Western film is an exercise, just as old dime novels would have been, in American myth-making. It operates on the conceit that to shoot first and ask questions later is just fine as long as you're the good guy. And don't we all assume we're the good guy? Peyton's hand finds no gun at his side, and we jump to close on Peyton's face, looking up from that hand in the direction he saw his horse. Then we get a wide shot that does not include that horse or its thief as Peyton heads to the right, camera panning with him, to the entrance of Sutler's store, dry goods, boots, tobacco, and cigars. Which, a sutler is specifically a person who followed an army and sold provisions to soldiers. So this is definitely a military town. The word derives from the Dutch zetelen to foul, sully. A zetelar does dirty work. A sutler wagon would essentially be the military equivalent of a chuck wagon. Except this is no wagon. It is one adobe building among many. The sign is permanent, painted on the wall. All around the porch hang ristras, strings of dried chili peppers. Peyton heads inside. In the script, interior, store, day. The lone clerk is showing a woman customer a bolt of cloth at the back of the store. Peyton hurries in and makes a beeline to the display case holding handguns and ammo. He spots something he likes and taps the glass impatiently. The clerk reacts with distaste to Peyton's appearance. Peyton. Excuse me there. Clerk, I'll be with you in a moment, sir. Peyton looks out the front window, up the street. The cowboy is untying the bay's reins. Peyton, more agitated now, glances back at the clerk, then moves around and opens the back of the display case. He extracts a shiny new Colt forty-five. The clerk reacts with alarm and moves toward Peyton. In the film, we don't cut to an establishing shot inside the store. And we skip that initial reaction from the clerk and we instead go straight to a close-up on three revolvers. Another revolver lies in a nice felt line case above them. Some others are off to the right. The ones on either side of the three seem to be Remington 1875 Army Outlaws. The one in the center seems to be a nickel-plated Colt single action. Peyton's hand comes into view and grabs that gun. He raises it, spins it forward, spins it back, spins the cylinder. Behind him are large jars of what might be pickles, what might be sausages, and what might be some kind of fish. Also some open boxes of cigars. He cocks the hammer back and points the gun over the glass display and we cut to a wider shot angled from his right. There are snowshoes and boots hanging behind him. A cash register, then shelves of some rather nice china, and rows of mason jars of various unidentified things. Peyton uncocks the hammer, and the clerk comes into frame from the left leading the way with some rather long-bladed shears. Clerk, just a minute. When I'm done helping the lady, I'll come up here. The clerk is played by Marvin J. McIntyre, who was a busy man in the mid-80s. In 1985 alone, he was in The Falcon and the Snowman, Fandango, The Western's Pale Rider, and Silverado, and an episode of Amazing Stories. In 86, he'd appear in Short Circuit 
in 87, The Running Man Return to War High Project X, and Kenny Rogers as the Gambler Part 3, The Legend Continues. In fact, out of 30 acting credits on IMDb, 15 of them were from 1985 to 1990. Only now does the clerk take the shears away from Payton's chest. He returns the revolver to the display case and Payton moves to the left, camera painting with him, past rifles and belts on the wall, and a rod hung with clothing. The script says he leans to peer out the window again, but in the actual set, the store continues past the clothing rack. Lanterns and saddlebags hang from the ceiling. An older man examines what looks like modern underwear and there is no indication that Payton is near any particular window before we cut to a POV out a window. A different angle on the horse and thief than the one outside. Now we can see the cantina sign above the door behind them. The thief seems to be situating the horse's saddle. Reverse on Payton, a wall of clothing behind him. Beat. The dwarf gauge autoloader. That's Italian. You can go pump or auto. The 45 long slide with laser siding. These are brand new. We just got them in. That's a good gun. You just touch the trigger, the beam comes on, and you put the red dot where you want the bullet to go. You can't miss. Peyton turns to his right, toward the clerk, off screen. Anything else? Peyton, how much to borrow it? Angle past Peyton on the clerk. Clerk, the guns are for sale. We hear a horse whinny. Peyton looks toward the now off screen window, then back to the clerk. Beat. Payton moves to the right, past the clerk, to the glass display. He indicates his coin on the glass. Payton, all right, what can I get for that? Cut to outside. The thief is still doing something. I feel like they could have staged this better so it was obvious that he was getting closer to mounting and leaving, but the saddle was already on the first time we saw him. He might be untying the horse from the hitching post. Close to the end of my month of westerns over at the Groundhog Day Project, Day 699, Guerrilla in a Civil War That Never Ended, 1st July 2015, I wrote of Westerns generally. Quote, Imagine, if you will, that the Western is a living thing. It was young once and it had fun. Stagecoach. It didn't worry about some of its racist or sexist undertones, the searchers, or how readily it reified and reinforced patriarchal and imperialist, colonialist notions about how the world worked. It sometimes sang and I'm sorry I didn't start this month with an earlier musical western. And it sometimes glorified violence. It had its adolescent period, figuring out what it was about, dealing in post-war storylines, 310 to Yuma, to deal with a different post-war world. When President Kennedy was killed not long after Liberty Valance was, the tone of the western changed a bit. Like it needed to exercise its own violent tendencies, the Wild Bunch. But it was also coming to understand more of the world outside itself. Violence was all well and good, and it did get things done, how the West was won. But violence was also destroying the world, had already destroyed the way of life of many of the natives the Western used to portray so simplistically. It became thoughtful for a bit, a man called Horse. Maybe this was the equivalent of its 20s and 30s, trying to be a grown-up, McCabe and Mrs. Miller, but still just wanting to play, Blazing Saddles. 
and Leone's deconstruction was part and parcel of that, rethinking all the ridiculous ideas that arose in adolescence. It settled in, let other action films take over the exciting stuff, not that the outlier Josie Wales is unexciting. It wanted to be young again. Like anyone getting older, it acts younger than it really is. Young guns. And hopes that acting dictates reality. But all it gets is evidence that it has gotten old. Unforgiven. Creaky bones. Sore muscles. It reminisces about old stories and rewrites its own history to move past old playful imaginings. Tombstone. But it also tells new stories. The quick and the dead. Remixes old ideas to pass the time open range. The assassination of Jesse James by the coward Robert Ford is like the melancholy that sets in when the Western realizes that it might die. It's like a different beast altogether, transcending the genre in ways that redefine retroactively what the Western was really about all time. The James Younger gang grew out of Confederate bushwhackers during the Civil War. When this film came out, America was once again bogged down in war. But there isn't just that. That war the American Civil War. It never really ended. Recent debate about the Confederate battle flag and its public display ought to demonstrate how true that is, even before you get into the larger issue of racial division in this country. Just today in the Washington Post, James W. Lowen, author of Lies My Teacher Told Me, great book, writes, quote, The Confederates won with the pen and the noose, what they could not win on the battlefield the cause of white supremacy, and the dominant understanding of what the war was all about. End quote. The misinformation about what the war was about comes from, for example, Confederate memorials. Lowen offers the state of Kentucky as a for instance. Some 90,000 Kentuckians fought for the Union, 35,000 for the Confederacy, but there are 72 Confederate monuments there, and only two Union. Jesse James fought for the South, and continued the fight beyond the confines of the war. Early in the film, Woodhite starts singing I'm a Good Old Rebel, and the others in the gang, including Jesse, join in. These are some lyrics. Oh, I'm a good old rebel. Now that's just what I am. And for this Yankee nation, I do not give a damn. I'm glad I fought again her. I only wish we won. I ain't asked any pardon, pardon for anything, anything I've done. done. I hate the Yankee nation and everything they do. I hate the Declaration of Independence, too. I hate the glorious Union, tis dripping with our blood. I hate the striped banner, I fit it all I could. I rode with Robert E. Lee for three years thereabout. Got wounded in four places and I starved at Point Lookout. I caught the rheumatism a-camping in the snow. But I killed a chance of Yankees and I'd like to kill some more. Three hundred thousand Yankees is stiff in southern dust. We got three hundred thousand before they conquered us. They died of southern fever and southern steel and shot. I wish they were three million instead of what we got. I can't take up my musket and fight them now no more. But I ain't gonna love them now that is certain sure. And I don't want no pardon for what I was and am. I won't be reconstructed and I do not give a damn. Oh, I'm a good old rebel, now that's just what I am. For this Yankee nation, I do not give a damn. I'm glad I fought again her, I only wish we'd won. I ain't asked any pardon for anything I've done. 
I ain't asking any pardon for anything I've done. This is a good decade after the war. It's easy, I bet, for the South to romanticize its side in the war. This country was birthed in rebellion, and we continue to love rebels and scoundrels. Even our Western heroes, in retrospect, are men nearly as bad as the outlaws after which they hunt. Pat Garrett was a criminal, Wyatt Earp a fascist bent on violence. And we're okay with that, too. In his review of the assassination of Jesse James by the coward Robert Ford, Roger Ebert describes the open spaces of Canada where it was filmed as a land so empty it creates a vacuum demanding men to become legends. I would argue that the West did this just fine regardless of the literal open space. The Western continues the idea, and we Americans take it as God's honest truth. We imagine an empty, wild space that we were all heroes for conquering. It's proof that America is the greatest nation on the planet, and hard evidence that America was kind of the point to history. This is where it was all headed. And we love not only our Whiggish history, but our great man history. Great men are not always good, but inevitably we tell our history in terms of what man was in charge, what man was spreading the culture that would eventually give birth to us around the globe. In the West, the Wild West, every man was a great man, at least for a little while. And the idea continues to this day with the whole 15 minutes of fame thing. Still, some men stand out from the rest of the pack. Lawmen like the Earps, outlaws like Billy the Kid or Jesse James. They stand out because they don't run like other men run. They don't shoot like other men shoot. They have their own way of doing things. They, even lawmen like Wyatt Earl, are rebels. Rebels grow old, as does the Western, as does the United States. It wiles away its days, the rebel, the Western, and the United States, reminiscing about olden days, days when it had more to fight in it, days when it had more hope, days when it knew who and what it was. When the black folk the South used to have as property became people and are allowed to have a voice that matters right alongside any other man's, it's like an invasion. When spy films and gangster films tackle many of the same themes as the Western, when late Cold War action films hold the attention of the audience that used to watch the Western, it's like an invasion, not battle, a fight for an identity that has been challenged. When the left and the right argue and fight over what the United States is and see some fundamental truths about its identity transformed, some for the better, some for the worse, it is again a conflict, a seemingly primal fight for the definition of the rebel, the Western and the Western myth, and America. In the assassination of Jesse James by the coward Robert Ford, we see former outlaws turning on each other because they cannot be who they were anymore. Jesse plans new robberies but does not carry them out. Is it any different, America, today? No nation is permanently anything, no more than the Western is. No more than any man might be. But change is a scary thing. When the nation steers drastically in any new direction, it results in an uproar, a fight. When a Western is too far from what we might expect, or nowadays seems just too old-fashioned and tired, it doesn't do so well at the box office. When a man presents himself anew, those around him may reject him as well. Those close to him may not recognize him. A man grows old. The Western grows old. The nation grows old. He wants to matter. It wants to be a positive addition to a long-winded genre. It wants to rule the world by sheer force of will. But old bones creak, old muscles cramp, and the larger world keeps moving into newer and stranger places. 
Life among grand changes is difficult for those on either side. I wish I had more time with this film. More time to write about it. As a film, it offers stunning visuals. Roger Deakins was nominated for an Academy Award for Cinematography, evocative music by Nick Cave and Warren Ellis, and some great performances. Casey Affleck was nominated for a Golden Globe and an Academy Award for his role as Robert Ford. The film works as a philosophical treatise on growing old, as evidenced above, as a memorial for the Western and the Western myth, and as a straight drama, a story about hero worship, about celebrity, about obsession, about paranoia, about life itself, but especially a life outside the strictest confines of civil society, even as it presents most of its scenes within the illusion of those confines. Pitt's Jesse James has the untamed unpredictability of his Jeffrey Goines in Twelve Monkeys, the unhinged menace of his early grace in California, and the thoughtfulness of his Mr. O'Brien in The Tree of Life. He is at once a force of nature on the brink of a violent outburst and a sullen man on the verge of retirement. A dichotomy befitting the Western. A dichotomy befitting America. End quote. Cut back inside, close on the clerk's hands offering to Peyton a dirty revolver. A Webley number 5, with an Adams patent injector instead of a standard fixed rod. Thank you, Internet Movie Firearms Database, for making me sound like I know stuff. And Peyton takes it carefully. While a Webley number 5 is probably a good decade newer than the shinier guns in the case, it has not been well maintained. He handles it like he knows it is about to fall apart. Which it immediately does as he turns it sideways and the cylinder falls out. Camera pulls back to a two-shot of the clerk and Peyton. Payton pauses, and then inserts the cylinder back into its place. Jump cut to outside. Payton comes toward camera, out the exit. Revolver in his left hand, and a box of bullets in his right. Camera pans left with him as he rounds the corner post of the store. Two women look on in horror at this man in his long johns, but we can barely see them with the blur of movement. Payton heads for the middle of the street. There are a lot of people about and at the far end of the street, past the flagpole with the United States flag, is the cantina. The thief is now on the horse. Payton looks down and presumably starts to open the box of bullets, but we are behind him and can't see, and the minute ends. That's all there is for Minute 10 of Silverado. And that is all for me. I've been your host all week. I'm Professor Robert E.G. Black, host of Such Movies by Minutes podcast as 5-Minute Arrival, Twin Peaks Radio, Minutia Ex Machina, The Groundhog Day Project Minute by Minute, and Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Minute. You can find links to these and more at lemmingdrops.com. It's time I said my fairly wells. You'll have a new host next week. In the meantime, you can find the Silverado Minute on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Play, or at the main site, silveradominute.com. Follow the show on Twitter at SilveradoMXM. Or join the Midnight Star, the Silverado Minute Listener Saloon on Facebook. Additionally, there are over 200 Movies by Minutes shows. Not all of them hosted by me. Check out MoviesByMinutes.com for more great shows. And stick around with this show in the coming weeks for more Movies by Minutes hosts. Join some of them here again next time on the Silverado Minute. Yeehaw.